So we're back in Revelation. We finished up chapter 15, which was kind of a precursor to chapter 16. Chapter 15 shows us the angels that are coming from the Holy of Holies in John's vision. He saw kind of the old tabernacle, the Old Testament tabernacle. Each angel was given a bowl that was filled with God's wrath. And these, up to this point, they had seven seals, seven trumpets, and now we have the seven bowls. The previous seals and trumpets have been partial judgments. There was still time for people to repent. There was still time that were, people were not affected. But with these now, these bowls, no one is going to escape judgment. The bull judgments are more severe, more complete, and they are without limits that were placed on the seals and the trumpets. Since there is no one to escape these judgments, as we said last week, at this point, the time for repentance is over. The day of salvation for these folks has passed. God's grace is done. Each of these bowls of judgment will happen in quick succession and will happen right before Christ returned to earth. So let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you. We thank you for your grace that we have right now. Today is the day of grace, and you offer salvation to any and all who hear it and receive it. But we know a time is coming where that will end. Lord, as we study your word, help us to be mindful of those who might be left behind during this time. And give us a heart to reach them for Christ. We want no one to be here for this. So Lord, I pray you anointing upon your lesson, your word. Help us to do it not as a, a curious person, but one who is burdened with the lost. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 16, verse 1. A continuation of what John saw. In 15, it says, Then I heard a mighty voice shouting from the temple to the seven angels, Now go your way and empty all the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. So last week we saw all the angels being handed a bowl of wrath coming out from the Holy of Holies. So it sounds like they're just kind of waiting. They're just, they've come out, they all have their bowls, waiting for the next order. And then you hear the mighty voice, and the mighty voice is either Christ or God the Father because no one was allowed to enter the tabernacle at that point in the sanctuary because of the smoke that was in there. So the voice coming from there either has to be Christ or God the Father. Back in Revelation 15, 8 says, the temple was filled with smoke from God's glory and power. No one could enter the temple until the seven, seven angels had completed pouring out the seven plagues. So the only person that could be in the temple is either Christ or God the Father. I'm believing it's Christ because the Bible says God's judgment was given to Christ. But I believe that's him saying that. And the Greek phrasing of the words mighty voice seems to emphasize the power and authority of that voice. Another indication that has to either be God the Father or Jesus Christ. How many of you parents have a different voice for your kids? One that you're talking to them and one when you're trying to really get their attention. We used to, when I, my kids were little, even with the grandkids, there's, my dad had it and I guess I have it now because everything that comes out of my mouth came out of my dad's mouth, so. But you have that voice that it just, it's loud and it's authoritative. If the kids are gonna run in the street, you say it differently 
than if they're playing in the yard. Hey, stop! And you want them to understand that that voice is different. And when you hear that voice, you better stop what you're doing. When the, and the phrase, a mighty voice, gives that same indication that it's different from every other voice. It's a commanding and powerful voice coming from the throne of God to indicate what's going to happen next. And verse 2 says, So the first angel left the temple and poured out his bowl over the earth, and horrible, malignant sores broke out on everyone who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. So all those who are left on the earth, those are all folks who have taken the mark. There are no other believers left. These are all folks who have taken the mark. And so now they're getting God's mark of either a boil or a sword, depending on which translation you read. Same as the Old Testament when God poured that out as well. Deuteronomy 28:35 says, the Lord will cover you from head to foot with incurable boils. Job 2 verse 7 says, so Satan left the Lord's presence and he struck Job with a terrible case of boils from head to foot. Exodus 9 10 says, as Pharaoh watched, Moses tossed soot in the air and terrible boils broke out on the people and animals throughout Egypt. These boils and sores not only itched and hurt, but they stunk, stank, whatever the word is, and they darkened the skin and disfigured the person with those. Look at Job 2.12 says, when they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him because he was so disfigured from the boils he had. And Job 7.5 says this, my skin was filled with worms and scabs. My flesh, my flesh breaks open full of pus. How about that for a description? Job 30, 30 said, my skin has turned dark and my bones burn with fever. Now the difference was in the Old Testament, they were healed of those. Now they're not going to be healed. Verse 2 goes on and says, they were horrible and malignant sores. When you hear the word malignant, what do you think? Terminal, incurable. And that was the first angel out of seven. Verse three says, then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and everything in the sea died. Notice it wasn't fresh blood, but it was blood like a corpse. What happens when a corpse dies? Their blood, what happens? It coagulates and starts decaying. So that's what the water was turning into now, not just fresh blood, but decaying, horrible coagulating blood. We do embalming now. Why do we embalm folks? Because the blood starts to decay the body and embalming slows the decay process. It, embalming helps preserve the body for viewing. If the person's not embalmed, what happens? The body decays a lot faster. So now we have water that's becoming like the decaying blood of a corpse. The first judgment affected one-third of the water. If you read back in several chapters ago. But here, it affects 100% of all sea and salt water. And every living creature in the oceans and salt water died, everyone. So now, not only do you have decaying blood, you have decaying animals. 
Again, that was only angel number two. Now angel number three says, then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs and they became blood. So first we had the salt water turned into blood, coagulating blood. And now we have all fresh water turned into blood. And all fresh water, that's all drinking water. Where do we get our water from? And again, in the beginning, only a third of the fresh water was affected. But now all, all drinking water was affected. How do you survive? So now you have terminal malignant sores on your body. You have no water to drink. What happens? Verse 5 says, And I heard an angel who had authority over all water saying, You are just in sending this judgment, O holy one, who is and always was. For your holy people and your prophets have been killed and their blood was poured out on the earth. So now you have given their murderers blood to drink. It's their just reward. And I heard a voice from the altar saying, Yes, Lord God Almighty, your punishments are true and just. How many, when you watch a court case and it comes out that the guilty one is actually guilty and found guilty? Don't you feel good that justice has been served? Well, now the angels are saying, yes, judgment has finally been served. And it's righteous and it's good judgment that God is pouring upon them because of what they've done in the past. Now, previously, I never noticed this before until I started studying it. We have seen that angels have power over winds. Revelation 7.1 says, Then I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds from blowing upon the earth. So you have angels with power over the wind. And now you have angels with power over fire. Revelation 14.18 says, Then another angel who has power to destroy the world with fire. So now we have an angel with power over water as well. Now, we're not sure if it's the same angel who poured out the bowl, but it doesn't matter. The focus should be on what he poured out and why, rather than who's doing the pouring. Verse 5 says, You are just in sending this judgment, O Holy One, who was and is and always was. Angel's telling God that, okay, you're, you're just. You are right in sending this judgment. But a lot of people even today think that God is unjust in his word and commandments. I mean, we, we were told in the news that picketing and stuff was going to happen because of that decision. And they're going to picket churches and pro-life places and stuff. Because the world doesn't think that God is just in what his word says and what his commandments say. But just like Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah Genesis 18 says this, God having an argument with or Abraham, Abraham trying to intervene for Sodom and Gomorrah. and says, surely you wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the innocent with the guilty. Why? You should be treating the innocent and the guilty exactly the same. Why would you do that? Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of the earth do what is right? So the angel's saying to God, first, there's no innocent there. Just like there was in Sodom and Gomorrah, there was no innocent. They got Lot out. He was the last one. And so, again, another reason to believe there's no Christians left or no believers left, no one who's not taken the mark. 
So God is pouring judgment for the same reason that he poured it on Sodom and Gomorrah, that there are no righteous people left. Believers have been who have not taken the mark, they've either been killed or starved to death. And the angel equates the judgment for the same reason. Lord, you judge Sodom and Gomorrah because there was no one righteous there. So now you are, what the Bible say, the Lord of the earth, to the judge of all the earth, do what is right. God is doing what is right in pouring in his judgment upon the folks that are left. And the reason he did that is because of verse six, it says, for your holy people and your prophets have been killed and their blood was poured out on the earth. You wonder when all the martyrs are gonna be avenged? This is when they're gonna be avenged. So you've given their murderers blood to drink. It's their just reward. And I heard a voice from the altar saying, Lord God Almighty, your punishments are just and true. The other voice is probably another angel, but in, again, it doesn't elaborate, so we're not gonna really focus on that. But it, he is just in corroborating the first angel's judgment. So you got two angels applauding God for doing the right thing. Now we go back to the fourth angel in verse eight and says, and the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, causing it to scorch everyone with fire. Well, God has a power and authority over creation, right? Everything that happens on earth, God has a power over, which includes the sun. And one commentary says it this way. However, this does not mean that by some natural process, the sun began to give out more energy. The plague is a supernatural judgment accomplished by the power of God. Now, I'm not sure if you noticed, but I'm not a guy who tans very well. And so I'm using Hunter Block anytime I'm in the sun because I've been burnt numerous times and it is painful. It ruins your vacation. I remember we were in Florida once visiting my brother-in-law and it was overcast. It was not sunny at all. So I'm thinking, cool. But guess what? Even though you're overcast, you can get burnt. And I was cooked. And the rest of the vacation, I was sick and in pain. And that's just a sunburn. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when God scorches the earth with the sun? The Bible talks about fire as being judgment. Isaiah 24, 6 says, therefore a curse consumes the earth and its people. They are left desolate, destroyed by fire. First Kings 18 says, immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the, wood, the stones and the dust, and even licked up all the water in the ditch. Malachi 4, 1 says, the Lord Almighty says, the day of judgment is coming, burning like a furnace. Matthew 3.10, yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Revelation 29, but fire from heaven came down from the, on the attacking armies and consumed them. In verse 9, we were just, the verse we just read, everyone was burned by this blast of heat. You ever had a burn? You ever get burnt? I was cooking french fries in oil a while ago. And I had the lid, and I'm just trying to chuck the fries in and close the lid fast enough, but it didn't work. The first time I threw the, the fries in, it just flashed up over my hand. And for, for the first few minutes, I hit under cold water, and it felt okay. And I sat down to eat, and it was just burning and burning, and 
my kids were like, Dad, you got to go. You got to go to the docs. You got to go to the emergency room. So I got down, and then they, they had to bandage it all up, and it, it stung for a good long time. And that's just that type of burn on just my hand. The Bible says, everyone was burned by the blast of heat. Anyone ever go to Disneyland, Disney World in Florida in August? Yeah, we've made that mistake once or twice. And it is just torture walking from ride to ride. I, I call it purgatory because it is horrible. And you're just longing to get into a nice air-conditioned room. I'm not a fan. Never was a fan of Disney World. But that's just because it's 80 or 90 degrees with 100% humidity in Florida. But these folks are going to be burned with a blast of heat, unlike anything we've ever seen. And again, no one will be spared. No one will escape this judgment because verse 9 says everyone, everyone. You can try to hide in your house. You can try to hide in your cave, wherever you think you're going to hide. The Bible says you are going to be burnt or whoever's here is going to be burnt, everyone. And look at the response of those folks. Verse 9 says everyone was burned by this blast of heat and they cursed the name of God who sent all of these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. So the God that they don't want any part of, they're cursing for cause of what is, what's happening. And we see that today. How come God didn't prevent this? How come God didn't stop that or prevent that? You don't want him. You kick him out of every place we try to bring him in. Why would God intervene when you told him to get lost? Instead of repenting and crying out to God for help, they blamed and cursed God. We see that now all the time. What do we call a natural disaster? An act of God. As if God is pouring judgment on us at this moment. People blame God for things, but they don't give him credit for anything. In Revelation, it says that that God did send these things. But in today's age of grace, they're allowed. They're not sent. There's a difference. People wonder, and every time there's a natural disaster, people wonder, is this God's judgment? Is this God's judgment? My personal opinion is no. It's just a natural consequence of sin in the world. Back in the 80s when the AIDS thing came out, we're, you know, all the Christians were jumping on God's judgment, God's judgment. No, I believe God knew this was going to happen and said, don't do it, but we did it, and so it happened. And the same with everything else. And I've used this analogy. You go into that small nursery in the back, and if you've got 20 people in there and somebody's got a cold, everyone's walking out of there with a cold because you're in the surroundings with sickness. We're in a world that's full of sin, so we're going to be affected by sin whether we cause it or not. Every natural disaster is just the world coming to an end. And the Bible says in the last days there's going to be a, much, a whole lot more of them. God allows us to suffer for the consequences of our sin, but we also suffer for the sins of other people. I'm going to understand that. If you get in a car accident, you're hit by a drunk driver, you suffer because of somebody else's sin. 
We blame God for every bad act, but never give him glory or credit for every blessing. We kick God out of everywhere and wonder why he doesn't protect us from bad things. Notice that all they, that they all worship the Antichrist and the beast and they, they acknowledge Satan, but they think God sent these plagues or they know God sent these plagues. In this current age, we see both the goodness and the severity of God. How many understand that? God, the Bible says that, we heard it this morning, God reigns on the just and the unjust. That's two ways. God pours blessing on folks, just and unjust, and God pours hardship on just and unjust. Romans eleven twenty two says, notice how God is both kind and severe. He is severe to those who disobey, but he's kind to you as you continue to trust in his kindness. God, how many know God spanks you? When you get out of line, God spanks you. And the Bible says he does it because he loves you. He wants you to keep straight. The Bible says for our kids, if we don't, we don't, we don't correct them, we don't train them, we don't love them. That's what the Bible says. And if the Bible says that for our kids, how much more does God do that for us? God loves you and wants you to do right, so he's going to correct you when you need it. And sometimes that could be a little tap, and sometimes that could be a two-by-four upside your head. All this in effort to bring people to repentance. But during the tribulation, there's going to be no kindness. It's only going to be severity. Why? Because all these folks have rejected God's goodness and mercy up to this point. And God says, okay, that's enough. And now God's allowing them to receive the consequences of their choices. People say, well, how come God sends people to hell? God sends nobody to hell. Going to hell is a consequence of a choice you make. If you live this life and you want nothing to do with God, God says, okay. You don't want to have me in your life when you're alive, you're not gonna have me in life when you're dead. And the consequences of that is hell because God's not in hell, so he's gonna put you in a place where God's not. You've chosen that. God sends no one. The Bible says that hell was made for his devil and his angels, period. Only, that's the only people that God's gonna send there. We choose to go there. 1 Thessalonians 2.9 2, says, this evil man will come to do the work of Satan, the Antichrist, with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of wicked deception to fool those who are on their way to destruction. Why? Because they refuse to believe the truth that would save them. So God will send them great deception upon them and they will believe all these lies. Then they will be condemned for not believing the truth and enjoying the evil they do. This is the verse we talk about when we said before, if you hear the gospel now and you don't accept it, after the rapture of the church, you won't accept it because you're hearing the truth now and the Bible says they will be condemned for not believing the truth, but also after the rapture, God will allow them to believe the lie. That's why it's so, that's, I've heard it said, that's the scariest verse in the Bible. Because if you reject it now and the rapture happens, you will not get saved after that. 
Too much has been given, much is required. You've heard it. You've had the op opportunity and you've rejected it and God says, okay, fine. I'm gonna let you believe the lie that you already believe. Going back to Revelation 16, says, 10 says, then the fifth angel pulled out his bowl of wrath on the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness and his subjects ground their teeth in anguish. This is designed to force the antichrist system into confusion. Right now it's kind of a well-oiled machine, but now God's gonna throw confusion into the system. And it focuses on the headquarters. Look, look, it says the throne of the beast, not the beast yet, the headquarters and his followers. The Antichrist, his judgment's going to come in a little bit. But right now, God's throwing total confusion into that system that's going on. Darkness also prevents them from, who have been burnt from receiving treatment. Their pain is intensified during the darkness, and what happens? They grind their teeth in anguish. How many get sicker at bedtime? Your headache gets worse, your sore throat gets worse, your sunburn gets worse at bedtime. That's what's happening here. They intensify at night. And so all these judgments that's being poured upon the people are going to intensify in the darkness. But yet again in verse 11 says, and they curse the God of heaven for their pains and sores, but they refuse to repent of all their evil deeds. Now it seems to indicate that if they did repent, God would spare them. But the truth is, the darkness is physical, but it's also spiritual. They're spiritually in the dark. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, Satan, the God of this, of this evil world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe, so they are unable to see the glorious light of the good news that is shining upon them. So they're already blinded spiritually. The enemy has succeeded in totally blinding them from the truth spiritually, and now they're blinded physically because they can't see what's out there. And these are judgments. These are not acts like we saw in Romans where God tries to get people's attention. This is no opportunity to repent. This is total judgment. And no amount of judgment or purgatory or even the lake of fire will bring people to repentance after they've rejected God's offer of grace and mercy. There's a teaching that says there's a purgatory. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible says when we die, we go instantly to one of two places, with Jesus or in, right now it's the uh, shield, the dead uh, place of punishment. And that place of punishment will eventually be thrown into the lake of fire. But right now they're in agony. Luke 16, Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus wakes up in hell. Or yeah, the rich man wakes up in hell. Lazarus wakes up in heaven. So when you die, you're in one of two places, period. And there's no leaving either of those two places. So there's no praying anyone out. There's no time of repentance during that time. The Bible says it's given unto man once to die, then the judgment. There is no, no second chance after you die. The language here seems to indicate that they recognize their sins, but they don't repent of them. How many people today think they're sinners? I bet you most people think they're sinners, right? Yeah, someone, are you a sinner? Yeah, I probably sin. But they don't feel the need to change that. They're okay with it. 
God is allowing them to make that choice. But with that free will choice will come consequences. The worst thing we can do as parents for our kids is to bail them out of everything all the time. We have to let them know that there's consequences for the choices that they make. And we try to keep them from making those choices. But if we keep bailing them out when the things are small, they're going to think they get bailed out when the situations become adult. Verse 12 says, And the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and it dried up so that the kings from the east could march their armies westward without hindrance. So now we're getting in preparation for the final battle, the battle of Armageddon. Verse 16 says, And they gathered all the rulers and their armies to a place called Armageddon in Hebrew. And these kings or their rulers are from the Orient, and they start to march toward Israel and the valley of Megiddo. Satan and his power will make all these leaders join together in an effort to destroy Israel. And this plague is preparing them to advance in battle. He's getting the place ready. He's getting the, the highway ready for them to go. The enemy's block, uh, affecting the leaders of these countries, so they all come together. What's the phrase? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, everyone hates Israel. They may hate each other, but they all hate Israel more. So the devil's going to make them coalesce as one unit to come against Israel. Revelation 19, 19 says this, Then I saw a beast gathering the kings of the earth and their armies in order to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. So we see Satan advancing, believing that he's going to win this battle. Going back to Revelation 16, verse 13 says, Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs leap from the mouth of the dragon the beast, and the false prophet. So we know the dragon is Satan. The beast is the Antichrist, and the Bible declares the last one as the uh, false prophet. And what we have here are unclean spirits coming out of the mouths of these three. And what they're doing, since it's coming out of the mouths, they're indicating communication to their followers. So they're speaking these things. These unclean spirits are speaking through the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet, speaking through them to the leaders, Satan's instructions of what to do next. And they are lying to the leaders in a very convincing way. And they're going to be doing false miracles and false signs and wonders to get these leaders' attention to convince them to follow them. And through their deception, they will convince the leaders, all these leaders, to join the fight. Because for, uh, verse 14 says, these miracle-working demons caused all the rulers of the world to gather for battle against the Lord on that great judgment day of God Almighty. Notice who the miracles and the communication is with. The leaders, whoever's the rulers of these countries. He's not talking to general people. He's talking to the leaders because the people will now follow the leaders. Look at the leaders we have now. How many people follow them simply because of what they say? Good or bad? People f want to follow someone. And it includes every leader. Notice, now we've had world wars. We call them that, but they weren't really inclusive of every country. 
And there's a lot of countries that weren't, didn't participate in World's War, <coughs> World Wars I or two. But this one, this battle was going to include every single nation. Now Jesus interjects a warning to those of us who are reading this before it happens. Now we're reading it. Obviously we're not in the tribulation now. Rapture hasn't happened. And so Jesus kind of throws in this one sentence as we're reading it now of future events. He says this in verse 15. This is to us. Take note, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are those who are watching for me who keep their robes ready so that they will not need to walk naked and ashamed. So he's talking to the church. In other words, we need to be ready for the rapture. Are we watching? In other words, are we anticipating his return? Do we keep ourselves free from sin? Which means he's talking about your, are your robes ready? Are you free from sin? Naked and unashamed means we're not covered by Christ's righteousness. We have to be ready now. We can't live our lives thinking that we'll get ready at the last minute because Jesus says, I'm gonna come like a thief in the night. Poof. You're not gonna have any time to get right. Now, keeping free from sin does not mean we are sinless. It means we recognize sin, we ask God for forgiveness of that sin and we move on. And we repent of it. And if we do it again, we repent of it again and move on. First John 1, 9. Confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from unrighteousness. He's talking to believers because we all sin, right? Do a word study on sin and you'll know that you can't go five seconds without sinning in some manner. Verse 17 says, Then the seventh, seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a mighty shout came from the throne of the temple in heaven, saying, It is finished. This is the last bowl of God's wrath on the earth, and it fills the atmosphere. The seventh and final, and we know seven means the number of completion, and it finished the sevenfold outpouring of God's wrath upon the earth. And these last verses describe what the plague is now bringing on the earth. Verses 18 through 21 says, then the thunder crashed and rolled and lightning flashed. And there was an earthquake greater than ever before in human history. The great city of Babylon split into three pieces and city around the world fell into heaps of rubble. And so God remembered all of Babylon's sins and he made her drink the cup that was filled with the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island disappeared and all the mountains were leveled. There was a terrible hailstorm Hailstorms weighing 75 pounds fell from the sky under the people below. They cursed God because of the hailstorm, which was, very, which was a very terrible plague. Now we'll get into more of that next week. But the takeaway from today is the verse that we just read before that. Verse 15. Take note, I'm coming unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are those who are watching for me. Are you watching for Christ's return? I mean, you really think he's going to return. And that means how you live every day, not just how you live on Sundays. Are you really thinking that he's going to come? Now, why would the Lord put this in the middle of the judgments? Because he wants us to be aware of what is coming. 
how horrible it's going to be. He doesn't want anyone to be there. I mean, you think about it, Revelation, since the church is not going to be there, why do we need to know what's going to happen? We're not going to be here. God wants us to know what's going to happen so we have that sense of urgency about telling people about Christ. And that we as Christians need to be ready for it as well. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 says, For you know quite well that the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly like a thief in the knife. When people are saying all is well, everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall upon them as suddenly as a woman's birth pains begin when her child is about to be born. And there will be no escape. You know, we think about, we see what's going on in the world today and we think it's terrible, and it is. And a lot of stuff's going on, a lot of strife going on. But the Bible says, it's when everyone is saying, everything's peaceful, everything's good. We're okay, we're over this hump, we're, we're fine. That's when the Bible says God's coming back. Not when we're looking around and it, it's all in up in turmoil, we think God's gonna come back then. No, when everything calms down, things get back to normal, all the strife is gone. The Bible says people are gonna be saying all is well. Everything is peaceful and secure. That's when disaster will fall upon them. Let me close with these two quotes. We've used a quote that Tiff used a lot. It says, prophecy isn't meant to scare us, but to prepare us. And I like Warren Wiersbe has a quote too. I like it. It says, Bible prophecy isn't entertainment for the curious. It's encouragement for the serious. How serious are you about being ready? Whether we close our eyes here and wind up in heaven or the rapture happens, are we really serious about being ready for this? You know, as you know, my wife and I, we, we finally moved, got our own place. The impetus behind us moving was a lot of my, or not a lot, but some of my friends have passed away recently, younger than I am, quickly. And I thought, you know what? If something happens to me, where's she gonna go? Because that's the church house. Where's she gonna go? How's she gonna do it by herself? So I said, you know, I may not die for 30 years, but I might die in 30 days. <laughs> so we need to prepare for that. And that's just here and now. We wanna prepare for that. There's much more serious thing that's gonna happen when I die. <laughs> Am I prepared for that? We all prepare for stuff here. And it's okay to prepare for stuff. And we prepare for everything. You prepare to have a baby. You prepare to get married. You prepare for your retirement. You prepare for everything. The biggest thing you gotta prepare for is what happens when you die. Because Life is fatal. Nobody gets out. Everyone is gonna come to that point at some point. A friend of mine back home, we, his wife and I worked in the kids' ministry together for years. I, they, they've recently moved and I found out he's got ALS. And you know what that is? Horrible. And you hear about people that are dying at young ages. I saw some famous kid died at, what, he was 18 or so, 
It was a movie, he was on TV or whatever. He died at 18. And the thing is, we don't, there's no guarantee that you're gonna be here tomorrow, none. You could, heart attack in the middle of the night, car accident on the way home. Several years ago, the pastor from Reading, Glad Tidings, if you remember this, he and his wife were out riding on a motorcycle. Got hit by a car, wife was killed, and he lost his leg. Just like that. You don't know when it's gonna happen. And you don't know when it's gonna happen for people that don't know Christ either. That's why we need to be serious encouraging people to know Christ. That's our job. Because when all is said and done, when we stand before God, God's gonna say, what did, what did you do? What did you do to lead people to Christ? And I'm gonna make sure I've done what I can to do. And not so much that, is I wanna see them again. I wanna be in heaven with them. I don't want them to suffer. Bible prophecy isn't entertainment for the curious. I'm not preaching this because I like talking about bad things. It's encouragement for the serious. We need to be serious about what God is doing for us personally and in this church and in the world. And the question you have to ask yourself is are we really serious about that? Would you stand as we close this morning? Would you bow your heads for a moment? Summer months are here and a lot of folks are on vacation and we all need vacations. It's a great time. We all need to rest and relax. Jesus spent time alone. So we we're glad that folks are getting encouragement and just being rested while they're away. But just like vacation, it's over. You gotta come back to work. So that leaves us with a small number on a Sunday morning. That's okay. Because the folks that are here are the ones that God wanted to be here. So I never want to take for granted that everyone who comes to church knows Christ in a personal way. That you actually came to Jesus and asked for forgiveness of your sins. A lot of people go to church but never have done that. And you may be in this church this morning thinking, well, I'm in, I'm in church, that's good enough. The Bible says the church doesn't save you. I don't save you. I don't forgive you of your sins. Church doesn't forgive you of your sins. The Bible says that Jesus forgives you of your sins. And that means you have to come to him humbly and say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know that my life, I am not worthy to get into heaven and no amount of good things I do will get me into heaven. Will develop a relationship with you. But the one thing that will get you into heaven is coming to him and confessing those things. Jesus, I, just like the thief in the cross, Lord, remember me when you come into your heaven. I have nothing to give you. I have nothing of value in my life. I'm a sinner that's worthy of punishment. But Jesus, because you suffered for me, you took my penalty. I believe that that is sufficient 
for me to get in, for me to have that relationship with you. So I repent of those sins and I trust in what Jesus did. Not what I do, but I trust in what Jesus did for me. If you're here and you've never done that before and you really wanna have a relationship with God, not just an intellectual knowledge about who God is, but you wanna know him personally, then this is the moment to do that. If you want that relationship, I want you to raise your hand. I'm gonna pray with you and lead you into that relationship. Father, I do thank you for all of us here who have made that decision to follow Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that you saved us out of our sin. The Bible says while we were yet sinners, you died for me. In other words, while I hated you, wanted nothing to do with you, yet you still died for me. Father, I, what can I say? Thank you. Thank you, thank you. And thank you for the blessings you poured upon us since we've come to know you. And as we learned in Sunday school, we're not free from troubles or hardships, but we have a God who can carry us through those hardships and gives us wisdom on how to handle them and gives us the strength and energy to push through. So Father, we thank you for your many blessings. Too many to count. So we just give it a blanket thank you from our heart for all you've done for us. Now Lord, I pray your blessings upon each person here and those that may be watching or may watch this in the future. Allow the Holy Spirit to really give you joy and peace today as we leave. And allow, just like I tell my grandkids, Lord, let us know you love us. Let them know you love them. So Father, I commit each person to you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Next week, 4th of July, celebrate what God's done for this country. Keep praying for it. And I'm going to see you next Wednesday.